Welcome to the Scott and Manaz podcast. This is episode 16 and it's the very last episode of 2020. So we have a, a lot of things to talk about because 2020 was very action-packed. Um, but to start with, I thought we'd brighten up the uh, the mood of 2020 and talk about a fantastic new article that Manaz has uh, just completed and will be soon published. It's about art, intersection of art and genocide. That's not bright. So. That's not bright, but it's, you know, this is our household. It's it's uh, genocide day in and day out. So I read it. I read the uh, sort of initial draft, and I thought it was fascinating, and there's a lot of things just popping in my head about how, you know, I do visual arts myself, and it's the idea of how art would uh, express itself in the case of genocide. So just can you, if you can give me a little bit of uh, what you were, how you came to, to, to write this and what your thoughts were. Sure. Happy New Year to our audience. Um, like five followers, I think we have. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the last day. Tomorrow's the last day of 2020. So, so we're wrapping it up. I, um, yeah. So I just, I wrote an article for a edited book on art and suffering. Um, I was invited to write an article, and they gave me the option of thinking of any kind of subject area or um, geographic area, and I chose India and Pakistan um, as my my geographic area. And I started to do research about, I don't know, a couple of months ago, or it's been on my mind for a while. And so the deadline was coming up, and I just kind of wrote it this week. And it's a, it's an article that talks about how photography, art installations, paintings, um, uh, metal uh, woodcuts, um, letters, postcards have been sort of coming out of both Indian and Pakistani artists about the partition. Um, artists that were first generation uh, themselves refugees of the partition, but also lately in the last 10 years how young generations have started to do art together and talk about parallel stories and uh, stories of refugees and loss and trauma. So I really found it interesting because it has a lot to do with my own history, but I thought it was really very positive that this generation is interested in collaborating and really talking about something um, that their own parents did not. So they're trying to get out of this sort of hatred of Hindu, Muslim, India versus Pakistan, Pakistan versus India, and, and really, really exploring how we can understand the loss at the same time understand each other's loss in a way that we can maybe build a bridge. So I mentioned a couple of things that have happened recently. In 2015, there was a, in Venice, they have a Biennale every year, as most of you know, and there was a woman um, who set up an Indian Pakistani uh, artist to collaborate and do something about the partition, and how they felt that art was something that did not create borders but actually opened up borders and that we don't need to constantly think of borders and think about race and religion in these very strict ways, but to open up these ideas. And so as a Pakistani who is basically second generation, um, I kind of you know delved into this and compared it to other artists of genocide like Bosnian and also 
Holocaust and also the Armenian Genocide. And that was my project this week. Do you think that uh, the partition, it's been 70 odd years now since the partition, um, is well understood outside of South Asia? Or even yeah. inside South Asia for that matter? Well, I mean, one of the things that I do say in my article, and it's interesting because I may have to work on it in terms of um, what it's called. So there are people who think that when the partition happened in 1947 between India and Pakistan that it was indeed a genocide because 1.2 million people were killed and about 14 million were displaced. Um, and some people say it was just a war. So the fog of war has sort of diluted um, the massive uh, refugee crisis. Um, it's one of the biggest refugees cri crisis in the 20th century that is really not recognized or talked about broadly. Mm. Yeah, when I read, I just want to reflect on this article, and I read it, it was, uh, my mind was exploding with uh, thoughts and ideas, and I said to myself, this is a whole new course, you know, of, <laughs> of thought yeah. for, for a college professor like yourself. Um, the expression, what, I should ask you this, um, in your research, what was the cutting edge of expression of art when it comes, comes to genocide? I mean, um, is it taking a long time for art to catch up with feelings of genocide? Uh, yes and no. I mean, Holocaust survivors have done a lot of art um, who were kids, you know, that were in ghettos or in concentration camps or, um, you know, cartoons or books like, you know, uh, Art Spiegelman, um, Bach, Leo Bach that I mentioned in the article, and other many other uh, fantastic artists. But I think what, what's interesting about the sort of South Asian project is how it it's come out in a way that I find very optimistic. It's not about hatred of Hindus and Muslims. It's about talking about that displacement and loss of culture, language, and place, but it's also collaborating with each other because both Indians and Pakistanis lost. Both Indians and Pakistanis were murdered. Um, and, you know, unfortunately right now in India, it's a really very dire situation for Muslims. And also there's a Kashmir issue. Yeah, like ongoing. Yeah. But I'm kind of saying, you know, maybe this generation is um, sort of dealing with it. Because generationally, we know that in trauma studies, that sometimes the second, third generation is really the one to focus on the loss and to actually build some kind of bridge um, of thinking. Because they're not a direct witness of that suffering. I was thinking out loud, and <clears throat> maybe I'm just naive, but uh, I was thinking about the specifically uh, South Asian art form of Kavali and Ruzzles, and I said, you know, clearly, traditionally, these, these songs are about exalting the divine, but I wonder if there's people out there who would be interested in bringing the um, partition into their stories, you know. It seems like it would be an... Uh, a logical place for uh, people from South Asia to sort of work out their their demons in that regards. Well, I mean, we have very famous poets uh, that have done that, like you know, Iqbal and Fez Ahmed Fez on the Pakistani Muslim side. 
that have really spoken about this kind of loss and terror, and so have artists, you know, during that time. But really, um, I, I think the art installations that I was really impressed with with were recreations of the noise or the sound of destruction or the recreation mm. of a house which housed a letter from a sister that was um, pulled away from another sister. I mean, I think those things are very powerful, but it's still art. It's still an expression. And there's no hatred in it, but just a loss. And I think that's something really powerful that you can experience. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful... Um it's a wonderful article, and I'm, and I'm sure it'll be. You, it'll, you know, once it's printed, people are going to really take a look at that and be impressed by it. So, looking forward to that. And I just thought we'd take a look at um, 2020 real quick. And I, my first sort of observation I want to give you is that how it began. If you look at these memes about how it began and how it is now that are out there on the internet. I think to myself, uh, you, we have our wedding anniversary in January 10th every year, and we had a wonderful time in the city together at uh, a little hotel, boutique hotel in this, in Chelsea, I guess it is. And we started the year that way, and today we had gone uh, into the Bronx and given food to what's called the Friendly Refrigerator. Uh, because in that time, between then and now, uh, food insecurity has gone through the roof because of by five hundred percent, yeah, COVID and loss of jobs. Uh, I mean, I think about, for instance, people in entertainment. You know, Broadway's completely closed, and their fallback jobs what waiter, waitress, and that's delivery, gone. Delivery, <laughs> that's person. gone. So there's huge components of New York life where people are just completely desperate to the point where they, you know, they have to go to these fridges because they're new to the idea of food insecurity. Food insecurity and this is the one way to keep their dignity. And this is the massive change. I mean, you can talk about so many things that have yeah. gone on. Um, so, I mean, you know, Scott and I are not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but we have food every day. We make really good food, dinners, we eat at home. 99% of the time, um, but for me, I've been involved with a group of interfaith leaders in New York City who have pointed out to me, I mean, you see it on the news, but you know, when you start to talk to people who actually run these um, places of charity, not food banks necessarily, but uh, faith centers, like Hindu, Jehovah Witness, uh, Muslim, Christian, etc. You start to realize what the need is, and you have senior citizens standing in line from like 8 p.m. till 6 a.m. So, the little bit that Scott and I have been doing is to every four days stock up the shelves um, at this place. It's a it's a fridge. You can put you know produce in there or real food, or you could shelf it with pasta and applesauce yeah. and. Uh, granola bars and cookies and th and you have to keep in mind you know these are s also single women with three four kids so you have some things that kids enjoy definitely um, it's the least we can do uh, with the luxury that we have we have a roof on our heads I still am working I can put food on the table I can buy my kids things um, this is not the norm in America it should not be the norm and unfortunately our government has done absolutely nothing um, 
for these people, um, and they also are unemployed. And these are people who want to keep their human dignity, not walk into a food bank and be seen by people. Um, so this is one way that several people in the city have created a wonderful, wonderful initiative um, to feed people and 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 so they can at least have something to eat every night. Right. So, I mean, just for posterity's sake, so this is the last few days of 2020. And if you're listening to this in 2030 and everything's fine, which, which hopefully it is, uh, right now, you know, Congress is struggling to get out $600 payments to people. Um, there's a person named Mitch McConnell who's hopefully dead by the time you listen to this in 2030. Uh, he's trying to stop uh, payments of $2,000. Um, and we're supposed to be happy about that even though Canada, you know, they've been giving $2,000 to people every month throughout this COVID crisis. But I guess the good news is that, uh, you know, since our last podcast, Trump has lost. Um, and so getting the gangster out of the White House is a good thing. Uh, although we have our own differences about Biden. I mean, uh, he's certainly better than Trump, although I have got my concerns, my worries. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I'm not saying Biden is like the bomb or anything, but, you know, he's um, he is a Democrat. And like I said before, I'm a Democrat. And I think Kamala Harris being there um, could be something interesting. I know she doesn't have a superb record, but, you know, who does? And we have to give other people well, chances. getting in high office changes you too. Yeah. You know, they say that you get into that high office and, and uh, you know, your priorities start to change. Um, and I think, here's someone I want to, I want to, there's a, you know, from the left, we're on the left, uh, and from the left, we like to eat our own people, you know, and there's lots of super high critique on Biden, and I, and I understand a lot of it, believe me, uh, I, I understand his record over the last 45 years. And one of the biggest critiques, of course, is that he's old, he's quite old going into this job, and I say, here's the one thing that may be a positive. He is old, he has had loss, both personal and professional, and he may be, maybe, really interested in how his legacy is reflected on these next four years. And it, that may, I hope, reflect positively on the citizens of the United States and the world. You know, with, you got Brexit in England, you've got um, COVID, new strains, and all this other garbage going on. I'm hoping that he spends the next four years really trying to make himself, you know, good for himself and good for the for the country. Yeah, this is the best I can hope for, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I think Biden is somebody who has a lot of empathy, and I think I appreciate that in a human being. Um, but I mean, I, I think right now um, we're looking at vaccinations and moving that forward. But we're not going to end this. I know that people are excited about 2021. I am too. But I also have my hesitation about how quickly we can get vaccines going. Um, the deaths right now are at 335,000. That's one out of 1,000 Americans that die, right. mm -hmm. uh, have, have died. And it's, um, it's not a good situation. But, however, um, you know, I've been reading a book by Clar Clarissa Ward on her life and following 
what happened in Syria and what happened in, in Iraq and what happened in Palestine, Gaza, and also what, ha what she's right now in the book where I'm at, she's covering the tsunami in Japan. And to me, I think this pandemic is terrible, but nothing is as horrible as war, killing, and natural disasters, which have taken millions of lives that we don't even think of because it's hit the Western world. What do you think? What, you know, it's, there's lots of negativity, the George Floyd issue, race, race relations, and unemployment, etc. But what, do you think there's going to be silver linings from this brutality of COVID? For racism in this country? No, just for society in general. Yeah, I think the world is really going to change. I mean, there's a lot of transformations we're going to make. Um, I don't mean just virtual and on-site. Um, I think there's a lot of existential changes we're going to make. Um, I think there's a lot of... More than just the, the UFO countdown, <laughs> 180 days? No, but I mean, I, I think there have... And there's also like, you know, this kind of focus on nature that I really appreciate people are having. I always, you know, really love nature and I photograph sometimes, as you know. But it's, it's nice to see other people doing that and also appreciating the family, um, having meals, talking to them. I mean, my daughter and I have had some drama trauma, which has been really good, emotional crying and, and, and being together in a way. My son and I have done that. I think it's an important time and I don't think we should reflect on it as terrible, but a different time, yeah. a different time indeed. I think that there's a lot of it happens throughout history where there's these major events, but on the subtext, there's things going on that are, are amazing. Like, there, I mean, uh, SpaceX, Elon Musk company has been doing amazing things in terms of bringing uh, space travel into a, a mm -hmm. place that's affordable. Um, the Chinese have gone to the moon. Uh, we've got, you know, three or four robots on Mars. And I think the big, big uh, technological Revelation this or this year has been something called protein folding, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm an expert on it. But believe me, in in ten years, you'll say, "Oh, well, protein folding." Of course, everybody knows about it. Well, it's I been mean, a boon to all kinds of medicine. Right. And you make a good point. Science has been pushed, yeah. and so have the humanities. How can we innovate um, and still keep, you know, humanity going? Um, and the humanities does that as a liberal arts person. You know, how do I create meaning for kids that are online and looking at me in their box? Um, and it's made me more innovative. It made, it's made me a nicer person. Um, it's made me more malleable. And I think science is doing the same. And, you know, to give them a lot of credit, the scientists have worked really hard for these vaccines. Yeah. I, we sit here in Yonkers, New York, and I saw a Twitter today that said that it's from the Yonkers uh, School District saying that uh, Yonkers is fully... Uh, remote, meaning online, no problems, and everything's been working out. So, I mean, obviously, ideally, uh, kids being in school is the best thing, but now we have this, I guess this means no more snow days, I, we have this remote capability that we just never had before, and not just us, but schools all across the world, basically. And um, you know what? I kind of said something about continuity. You know, in business, we talk about business continuity where you know if there's a disruption in the future which hopefully is not like the one we have 
in terms of pandemic. But if there is, we've got a fallback. Everybody's like, okay, we'll go back to our, you know, online learning and everything. And it's not the best. It's not the ideal, but at least for some people, our daughter might disagree. But it's a good toolbox tool in our toolbox now. You know. Right. I mean, the thing is, yes, there's a pandemic, and we're locked up, and we're in New York City, and um, it's tough not to see your friends. I especially miss my family in Pakistan. But you know, that's life, and at least you're not dead. But this is not. It's not. It's not just a lesson for the pandemic. It's a lesson for life, and that is what I hope people will take from this and into the new year and have the empathy, the love, and the trust in humankind. I will say this, it does grind my gears a little bit. I heard a, uh, a quote that said that uh, in Israel, 20% uh, of their population has been inoculated with the COVID, probably the Pfizer COVID uh, immunity vaccine. And here are, we are, um, and this sounds like a little bourgeois, but we're sitting in the richest county in America. And after 20% of Israelis have been inoculated, I have no idea how to get the, the COVID vaccine. Yeah. I mean, I, I find that a little strange. And yeah. Israel's hopefully, population is 8 million. But still, regardless. We're talking you know. about 330 million. Um, we I mean, are also a highly capitalistic uh, society. That's what I hope that and we're people, highly diverse and free. I know, but I, I hope this is one of the things, you know, I, I've been wanting, uh, you know, uh, socialized medicine for a very long time. And I'm hoping, hopefully, this kind of breaks the back of this stranglehold that uh, healthcare companies has on our economy. Because, man, we need to have healthcare attached to being a citizen, not a job. And education. It's, Free education. Well, to a certain extent. And healthcare. I mean, you, you don't want too much free education, you know, being a competitor to your college. You <laughs> <coughs> well, then I to wouldn't a certain have extent. a competition. To a certain extent. So, yeah. Everything goes hand in hand. But so, Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, Happy New Year. And uh, the next time we broadcast will be in 2021, and things will be very different. Maybe we'll talk about uh, the first few weeks of Biden's administration.